You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Let me jump into uh, preaching today. We're going to be in Psalm 120, and uh, we are, we're in a, a series of psalms that we like to call His Playlist. Um, there are 150 psalms. If you got an old school Bible with pages and you're trying to find psalms, it's in the middle. It's one of the big books in the middle. And... Um, and Psalms is 150 different songs. The reason we call it his playlist is because these are the songs that Jesus would have sung when he gathered with the saints in worship. And, um, and, and our goal is to eventually preach all 150 of these. Um, and so we're only scratching the surface. Uh, but should, should the Lord tarry and allow us, uh, we hope eventually as a church to get through all of these. And so we jump back into, for six weeks, uh, his playlist as we look at six different psalms. We have, um, I think we have five different preachers that are going to preach through these um, in the Advent season. And so as we come to Advent, we turn our attention to the, what we call the Incarnation. The Incarnation is God, uh, the divine putting on flesh and becoming man. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation. And as we turn our attention to that, the Psalms bring us to a place um, of, of uniqueness in Scripture. We, we love preaching Psalms at Advent because most of the Psalms um, bring in some complaining. Um, a lot of them are like heavy metal psalms. There's some dark stuff in there. There's probably some screaming and, and stuff when they, when they sang them in the original languages. But the reason I love the psalms is because as believers, it shows us that it's okay to not be okay. It shows us that we can come and worship with a real grit and honesty before our Lord and, and acknowledge to God that there are times that we're in distress or that we're unhappy. Um, and so today I'm going to start with Psalm 120. And um, let me just go ahead and read the entirety of the song. Psalm 120 is titled, Deliver Me, O Lord, a song of ascents. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me! that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is a fitting psalm for the holidays um, as you guys gather with family and deal with your own family drama because all of our families have that, amen? Um, you can maybe resonate with, I am for peace, but they are for war. Um, like when you go to your Thanksgiving, uh, this, your Thanksgiving gathering this past week, I don't know if you had anyone that was just for war uh, bringing up politics or religion or you know, their favorite football teams or whatever would, would spark controversy at your family gatherings. Maybe that happened, maybe it didn't. Um, but I think, I think in, in the season of the holidays, we see a heightened um, awareness to things that just tend to tick us off as a society. Right? Cancel culture is rampant, especially during Christmas time. I, I, I'll never forget several years back when Starbucks neglected, how dare they neglected to put Merry Christmas on their coffee cups, and Christians said, we're going to cancel Starbucks. And then the following year, they just made their cups red, and it made the Christians even more mad. Like, I can't believe their cups are just red. And, and like, we find anything to be mad at, right? And, and then in, in the mix of all, all the cultural and societal things that get us tense during this time, we also have family drama that comes screaming in. 
um, starting at Thanksgiving, and, and we, you know, we all fight with our cousins and uncles about stuff. And then thrown into that is grief as well, uh, a, a time of, of, of celebration and time where we're supposed to be with family and spend time with one another, just by its inherent nature, reminds us of the family members who aren't in those gatherings, uh, family members who have gone on before us and passed away. Um, and so this is a real time of grief as well. And then, and then the, like, the days are shorter too. Like, anybody else want to go to bed at 6 p.m.? Like, I'm, I'm looking outside and I'm like, man, I'm just ready to just call it a day and go to sleep right now. And it's like, well, I haven't even had dinner yet. And so you have seasonal depression coming in there where the days are shorter, there's less sunshine. And just mentally, all of that begins to take a, a toll on us. It really does. And, and at our church, we want to really work hard every, every Advent season, every Christmas season to remember and remind you that, that in the midst of all the happiness and joy that happens at this time, there's also a lot of grief and sorrow that happens at this time too. And in the midst of both of those things, both of those things can actually distract us from the gospel. Whether we're too sorrowful and, and grief-stricken to, to turn our gaze to heaven, or we're too happy and caught up in the commercialism of Christmas to turn our gaze to heaven. Both can have negative effects on us. And by the way, both of those emotions are perfectly okay. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be depressed. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be happy and joyful. All of those things are okay and fine as long as we keep the gospel at the center of our lives. And, and verse 6 is maybe, maybe the one that resonates with me the most. It says, too long I've had my dwelling among those who hate peace. Any other parents resonate with that verse, right? Like as a dad, I, just, I live with these, these children who it just, they make it apparent to me that they hate peace. Um, they love war. One of, one of my kids' favorite pastimes is to wake up at 7 a.m. on a Saturday and choose violence. That's just like, that's their favorite thing to do. And, um, and, and so in the midst of all the stress and craziness that, that might happen, whatever your situation may be, I want you to take these next four weeks as we lead into Christmas to really devote yourself to each Sunday orienting your mind that you are going to be gospel-centered and focus on the incarnation and the triumph that comes in that. Today we're focusing on hope. Um, as we light these Advent candles later in the service, we, we, today's candle is focused on hope. And, and hope is something that we uh, need to remind ourselves of as we look at a psalm like this. Okay? Now, this Psalm 120 is the first of what's called the, the Psalms of Ascent. If you notice in the title, it says a song of ascents. Um, Hebrew could also translate it as degrees. Uh, what it means is it escalates, it rises. Um, and so that could have even meant the way they sung it escalated. Maybe there were like really dramatic key changes, like a Celine Dion song, and it, we've lost the melody, so we don't know exactly how it sounded. Um, but, but we know that there are 15 of these, these psalms that are called the Psalms of Ascent. And these 15 are Psalms 120 through 134, and they're arranged together. They're written at different times, uh, probably separated by generations, but they were assembled together, most likely during the exile. And so as Jews were exiled in Babylonian captivity, and as they returned from Babylon to Jerusalem, these songs were arranged, these 15 songs, for them to sing as they climbed the mountain to the city of Jerusalem. Now, th what happened was that uh, that tradition 
took root in Jewish culture, and each time that they would climb the mountain to the city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem's a city in, in high elevation, so as they climbed the mountain to the city of Jerusalem, every time they went, they would sing the Psalms of Ascent, these 15 songs. Um, so they would go three times a year at the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles. They would climb the, the hill to the city of Jerusalem three times a year, and they would sing these songs. Also, these 15 psalms probably correspond to 15 steps that were in the temple leading up to the Holy of Holies that the Levites would sing as they climbed up to the presence of God. Now, all of these songs, we're going to be looking at the Psalms of Ascent. We're not going to cover all 15 of them, but as we begin to look at the Psalms of Ascent, you'll notice a theme of all of them is hope. Um, and, and it's fitting because they, would, they originally sang these as, as they left a nation where they were exiled to and returned to their homeland. And so hope is what I'm going to focus on today as I, as I try to exposit this text. Um, and I want to show you three things. The, the hope for deliverance in the Lord himself, the hope for justice in a God who is just, and a hope for peace, an end of, of, of chaos and turmoil. Okay? Uh, as we look at the first one, number one, hope for deliverance. Hope is, let me, let me define hope first for you. Hope is a trust-filled feeling of expectation. This is a good thing for you to remember. Hope is a trust-filled feeling of expectation. Now, the, the problem with, with our version of hope is we begin to substitute biblical hope for our definition of hope. And our definition of hope is usually something that's a longing, but not a trust-filled longing. Something like, I hope I win the lottery. Or I hope Will doesn't preach too long. Those are long shots, right? Those aren't likely to happen. Um, but, but biblical hope is a divine certainty. Biblical hope is filled with a trust-filled longing. And so uh, the biblical hope of I have hope in the return of Christ, or I have hope in my redemption, or I have hope in eternal life in heaven, those things are things that I have not uh, attained yet, but ultimately I have assurance of those things, and I'm confident in those things. And so the hope of Psalm 120 is that kind of hope, a hope that is confident. And we find that anchored in verse 1. Now what I love about this psalm is the other six verses are just complaints. Um, so again, I want you to know, Christian, it's okay to gripe a little bit in your prayers, but you need to anchor your gripings in the hope, the divine certainty that God is still good, even if your situation is not. Verse one says, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. And, and this is what the entire psalm is rooted in. The entire, this is at the beginning of the psalm showing that it's associated with the title of the psalm, that the theme of the whole thing is that in distress we can call to God and he will answer us. There is a hope, there is a confidence that he will answer us. And in this answering we see the goodness of our Heavenly Father. The antithesis of that would be me on a Saturday morning when my kids have gotten up at 7 a.m. and chosen violence, right? I'm like, you got up early, you chose violence, you're on your own, I'm staying in bed. I'm not coming to help, I'm not being the judge, I'm not settling the dispute, you guys can just fight it out, blood fly, whatever happens, happens, and you're on your own. Godspeed to you, children. And, and here, though, we don't see a Heavenly Father who is like me, who wants to stay back, who wants to remove himself from conflict and distress of his children, but rather we see a perfect Heavenly Father whose joy it is to answer us when we find ourselves in trouble. He doesn't say, I can't believe you've gotten yourself in this circumstance again. 
I'm not going to help. Rather, we trust and we have hope and confidence that he will answer us. Now, there's an interesting Hebrew word here when it says, I called to the Lord. The word called is kara in Hebrew. Now, the interesting thing about kara is that most Hebrew scholars think that this word was an onomatopoeia, which is, by the way, one of my favorite English words, onomatopoeia. Um, an onomatopoeia is a word that sounds like what it means. And so kara, being an onomatopoeia, was probably an allusion to birds crying out in distress. If you think of like a crow or a raven, cawing, caw. That's, um, uh, that, that impersonation of a raven was free, by the way. Um, I didn't do that first service. But, but they, this, this would have been the linguists of the Hebrew language would have, would have compared the, the calling out of a bird in distress to this word that they put in their language, that when you were in trouble, you could cry out for help. And it took my mind to Jesus' teaching when he used the birds as an analogy for how the Father cares for us and how he delivers us. Jesus, in a sermon, as he, as he taught, used this analogy. He said, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And so we, we need to remember that, that when we call out to God, Kara, when we cry out to him in our trouble, that he is quick to run to our rescue and care for us. He is quick to answer us. And Jesus is pointing out as he points out the ravens, he says they're not worried about things. They're not storing up things in a barn for next year. They're just living in the moment and trusting that God will provide for them. And he says, oh, of how much more value are you than the birds? But here's the caution I would give you. We need to be aware that we not only call out to the Lord in our distress, but also in our praise. And in the times where things are actually going really well for us, times where we can pay all our bills, times where we're not grief-stricken, times that we're the happiest, we need to make sure that we call out to God in those times as well, rather than just in the times of distress. For if we become people that only call out in times of distress, we treat God like a crutch, right? And nobody likes that. You guys probably all have people in your life that only call you when they need help, right? I've got people saved in my phone, first name once, last name money. Like, so when they, when they call, I don't miss the call, I stare at it. I just like, just let it, let it ring for a while and go to voicemail because I, I, you know, I don't know what, what they need, but I know they need something. Um, and nobody likes people in their life that only come around when they need something. But how often do we treat the Lord like that? That we find ourselves in predicaments or circumstances where we really need that crutch of God and we'll come to him. Well, the Lord is a deliverer, and he is not a crutch. And if we treat him as such, if we use God as a crutch, it means we're foolishly thinking there are times that we can walk without him. And even when things are going well, and even when, when things seem easy and good, the reality is we're still nothing without the Lord, and we still can't carry on in life without our God. And the psalmist most likely wasn't a crutch type of person. Um, as, as the Holy Spirit and his sovereignty chose this man uh, to write this psalm, um, we don't know much about him, but we, we, we know that he probably wasn't just calling out to the Lord as a crutch, but he was calling out to one who he called out to continually. Now in verse 2, we see the exact cry that he calls out. And his cry is in the first line where he cries, Deliver me, O Lord. 
So deliver means to, to pluck away from or to rescue from. And he's saying, deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. So he's saying, can you save me from these liars around me, this deceitful tongue that is around me? And he uses that as singular. Um, now, I think there's, there's two, two meanings here, really, because I think that what's interesting about the Psalms is they're, they're written in a way that they would be applied to many different situations. And, and here, the psalmist, I think, gives us something uh, to, to ponder. He could be talking about literal people who, is, who are lying to him, maybe causing a sowing discord and drama in their life. Um, but I think it can also mean um, just from deceit itself, from sin itself, which is the, the interpretation that Augustine, the early church father, favored. And his commentary in this passage, um, he, he basically took the interpretation that ultimately the psalmist is saying, deliver me from Satan because he is the ultimate deceitful tongue. Uh, Jesus spoke about this in John 8 as he told the Pharisees. He said, Pharisees, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. The devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he, being Satan, is a liar and the father of lies. And so any untruth that comes from anyone's lips ultimately finds its root in the serpent in the garden. And Augustine says, his quote, I want to quote from his commentary here. Augustine writes, when, when he studied this psalm, he writes, The serpent cries to us, Behold, these other people have done this. Thou, perhaps, will not be able. Thou beginnest to ascend, but then thou fallest. He's talking about the temptation of Satan to all humans. Now, the psalm seemeth to warn us, it is the serpent. It is the deceitful tongue. It hath poison. So pray against it if thou wishest to ascend. And so he takes this psalm of ascent and, and, he, and he compares it symbolically to sanctification, that as we go in our life and as we get closer and closer to God, as we uh, become more and more holy, we have to pray against Satan. We have to pray against the deception in our life that would say we would never make it. We would never be good enough. Now the incarnation itself signifies the arrival of the deliverer who makes us good enough. He doesn't make us good enough because we've done enough right things or because we've attended enough church services. He makes us good enough because he in and of himself is righteousness personified. And he applies that to us as he stretches out his hands on a cross after living a perfect life and imputes his perfect life unto us. So when God sees us, he doesn't see a life full of sin that we've actually lived. He sees a life full of perfection and righteousness that Jesus lived in our place. And on the cross, the Father pours out his wrath on the Son that was supposed to be on our heads, but yet it's been removed. This is the gospel that we carry with us, our lives, and it is the gospel that we keep in the center of our lives when we find ourselves in distress. The second thing we see is a hope for justice. So we hope for deliverance, and then we hope for justice. You see, once we've been saved from something, we want justice to come from the thing that was coming to destroy us. And a theme that's actually seen throughout Psalms is a cry for justice. Listen, let me, let me make this clear. It's not wrong to want to see those who are wrong punished. There's nothing sinful in that. It's not wrong to, to want to see evil people um, reap the, the rewards of their wrongdoing. And a lot of the Psalms uh, pray for that end. Psalm 120, verse 3 and 4 it says, what shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? 
a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Now, again, this is symbolism, and we're reading Hebrew poetry. Um, so, really, the psalmist is asking, what awaits those who afflict God's children? And he answers, arrows and fire. This really, like, heavy metal imagery of arrows and fire. He mentions coals of the broom tree, which is a reference to the juniper tree, which is some of the longest burning wood. And so as he's referencing a certain type of wood in the song, he is, he is illustrating that the fire be long burning for those who are against God's people. Now, now it sounds kind of wicked, but let me, make no mistake, this is not a prayer of revenge. It's a prayer for justice. And there's a difference between the two. The, the psalmist is not praying that he would be able to avenge himself, but rather he's praying that those who are against God's people and, and steeped in sin would see justice. Now, the prophet Jeremiah would have been a contemporary of when this psalm was likely written, but at least when it was sung commonly. And the prophet Jeremiah longed for justice against the people that were oppressing Israel at the time, and he prophesied of the answer to this, the justice that would come for this, but it wasn't going to come in a military victory. It was going to come in a king. Listen to what Jeremiah prophesies. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called The Lord is our righteousness. Jeremiah prophesied and predicted what, what in the Hebrew language was called Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, the sent one to rescue the people, to be the deliverer and bring about justice. And Israel would find its fulfillment in being a spiritual people rather than a national people, one uh, people who, who pledged their allegiance to God's will in their life. But sadly, Israel, national Israel, would reject their king when he was born to them. And Jesus, the, the king on the throne, the, who Jeremiah calls the righteous branch, would rule forever and is ruling today. And justice still waits those who reject him. What this psalm calls death and hell, or arrows and fire. But the gospel that Jesus brought brings peace between God and man. It brings peace between us and our creator, but it doesn't necessarily always bring peace between us and other people, Right? Jesus' own words, he says in Matthew 10, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. That's, that's, a, that's a little bit of a concerning statement from Jesus. He says, I didn't show up to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Now, it doesn't mean that he came to slaughter everyone. What he means is the sword divides. He means that he is going to bring about division. Because people who accept the gospel and people who disobey the gospel, will find themselves at odds with one another. He continues by explaining, I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So what happens is when we accept the gospel and obey it, we find peace vertically between us and God. But sometimes that creates a lack of peace horizontally between us and other people. And while we have spiritual peace, we hope and pray for relational peace. You see, unless you're in some kind of authoritative government role, your job is not to enact justice, but you can pray for it. Don't carry it out. You're not Batman, right? I don't think y'all got caves with cool cars and gadgets and a butler in it, right? Um, so you're not this vigilante enforcer of justice. Leave that to God. 
but you can pray for justice. Uh, Romans 12, 19 tells us, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so while we pray for justice, we seek peace. While we pray for the arrows of the mighty from God himself, we go like arrows as missionaries to those who need to hear the gospel. And while we pray for just fire to fall on the wicked, we go with Holy Spirit fire, hoping to inflame those with gospel truth who might repent and turn to Jesus. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is God takes those who are opposed to him and are enemies to him, and he makes them allies of him and friends of him and sons and daughters of his. And while we have spiritual peace with God, we hope for relational peace with his children as well as with the enemies of God. Which brings me to my last point, which is to hope for peace. And so if we understand that vengeance and justice belongs solely to God, then we have to understand that our role in this equation is to hope and seek after peace with all people. Jesus told us that peacemakers would be blessed in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. He didn't say blessed are the peacekeepers, right? There, there, some of you are introverts, like my wife, and you think the best strategy is if I just never talk to anyone, then I'll never be at odds with anyone. That's a, that's a bold strategy, um, but it doesn't fulfill the Sermon on the Mount. You see, because you know, he says, Not blessed are the peacekeepers, but blessed are the peacemakers. You know, it's e it might be easy to keep peace. We can just avoid everyone. But it's not easy to make peace, to be creators of peace, to be instigators of peace. Especially when we find ourselves in unpeaceful company, this task is particularly difficult. Let's look at the last three verses as this is illustrated. The psalmist uh, continues to, to lament and complain. He says, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Now, this is a symbolic line, these two lines, um, and the reason I know it's symbolic is because he can't dwell in those two places at the same time. Meshach was far to the north, Kedar was far to the east, and so he is giving two outlying geographical areas. He may have written this while in exile or returning from exile uh, from Babylon, which was south. And so all these geographical uh, locations are wrapped in. The point of it is these are places outside of the borders of Israel that were havens for the enemies of God. The psalmist is lamenting about dwelling among wicked people. He's writing a song that can relate to all of us. And he probably didn't actually dwell in these places, but he's given an illustration of what it's like to dwell among people who do not like peace. He continues in verse 6, Too long have I had my dwelling place among those who hate peace. In verse 7 he says, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Let me ask you this. Do you ever just feel like you found yourself in actual places or environments or maybe situations where you're doing all you can to honor the Lord and it just never goes your way? The psalmist feels like he had done all he could do to make peace, but he still felt like chaos was all around him. Maybe some realms of your life feel just like that. Maybe your family is filled with toxicity. Maybe, maybe you're the, the only Christian at your workplace. Maybe your marriage is unequal in your spiritual devotion. Maybe your kids are rebelling against the gospel. What, whatever, whatever predicament you find yourself in, I want you to think about that. 
the most chaotic places, the most drama-filled places of your life, and ask yourself this, this, what if the most unchristian places of your life are there as a result of God's sovereign plan? What if the most unchristian corner of your existence, God has you there so that you can be a light in darkness, so that you can bring peace in the midst of chaos? What if you are to be the peace in places where there is no peace? And I know it can feel exhausting in those places, and I know it can feel impossible in those places, and that is why people like this psalmist wrote psalms like this because they just felt like there was nothing they could do. Well, in those situations, we can take some advice from the great scholar and theologian Brian McKnight. You guys remember he had a hit song called Start Back at One. It's a terrible song. But it goes, one, you're like a dream come true. Two, just want to be with you. Three, girl, it's plain to see that you're the only one for me. Four, repeat steps one through three, which makes me mad because one through three are not steps. There's no action in them. They're just statements. That's all it is. And five is make you fall in love with me. And he says, if ever I believe my work is done, then I start back at one, right? The beauty of the Psalms is that they would, they would put these things on, on loop, repeat these Psalms. And so after verse 7 doesn't come Psalm 121 in the way they would sing it. They would repeat it. And so after verse 7 comes verse 1. And so you have this escalation in verse 2 to 3 to 4 to 5 to 6 to 7. And you find the psalmist at a place of frustration that he doesn't know what else he can do. He says, I'm for peace, but when I speak, they're for war. And then we start back at 1 like Brian McKnight told us to. And verse 1 says, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. And that's kind of the, the roller coaster and rhythm of life, isn't it? That, that we do good for a little while and we live at the foot of the cross for a while and things go peaceful for a while and then circumstances happen and chaos comes in and crap falls apart and we get frustrated and things just escalate and escalate and escalate and the gospel in the Psalms and throughout the whole Bible is calling us to just start back at the anchor verse that in your distress you call out to the Lord. Cry out in your time of trouble. And you realize when you do that, there will be more times of trouble. That you're going to go through this cyclically throughout your life again and again and again. And God's going to answer you again and again and again. And God's going to care for you again and again and again. And he's never going to leave you and he's never going to forsake you. And if anything could be a testament to that, let the manger be a testament to that. That God could have saved distantly, but instead God saved incarnationally, that, that he didn't stay outside of the mess of life, but rather Jesus put on flesh and came to us in the midst of death, despair, sorrow, and heartache. He stepped into that to save us out of that. And so in our distress, we kara, we call out, we cry to the Lord, and he answers us. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.